because of the culture that we we created. And again, I think the culture is is not talking about culture. I think it's how I act as a leader, how I follow through things as a leader, what I think is important, uh, what the players think are important. And um, the culture was such so awesome. I mean, I had a, I had a kid, one of the same kids I was talking about earlier, he, he uh, got 60% to go to Tulane after his freshman year and came back in mid-spring and was like, hey, uh, yeah, I'm not going to go to Tulane next year. I'm coming back. And I'm like, I got nervous. I was like, yeah. whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Yeah. And I'm thinking, like, I don't know if I can get this kid, like, another big-time scholarship like that. Like, that's putting a lot of pressure on me and you. Mm-hmm. Like, is that a really good decision? And um, he was adamant about it. You know, he's like, I love it here. Um, this is where I want to be. I, I want to go to a program that fits me for who I am and the type of player I am. And uh, he came back, and he ended up getting a huge scholarship to go to University of St. Louis. Um, so, and he he was really happy with that decision. Hello, and welcome to the Fifty Cups of Coffee podcast. I am your host, Bobby Audley. I am a speaker and lead trainer with the Pano Training Group, where we work with teams and organizations looking to create powerful, positive peak performance team cultures. Before we dive into episode five of the podcast, I want to remind you that on April 29th and 30th in Ryan's hometown of Brighton, Michigan, we will be hosting our next Heart of a Leader open enrollment training. Heart of a Leader is a powerful, personal and professional development growth experience. It is our premium and premier offering for individuals, and I believe it is a personal growth training unlike any other. If you are interested in learning more about Heart of a Leader or any of our trainings, workshops, and keynotes, please head on over to panotraininggroup.com, P-E-N-N-E-A-U, traininggroup.com, or connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter at Bobby Audley. My guest on today's show is Coach Tom Eller, who is currently a hitting coach with the Baltimore Orioles organization. For 12 seasons, Tom Eller was the head baseball coach for the Hartford Community College Fighting Owls in Bel Air, Maryland. Tom and I met when I was an assistant lacrosse coach at HCC and working there in the Office of Student Leadership Development. Over his last 12 seasons at Hartford, Tom became the winningest coach in program history with 433 wins. Coach Eller surpassed the 40 win mark in each of the last four seasons with a 96-7-1 record in conference play during that time. Since taking over the program in 2007, the Fighting Owls under Coach Eller won five Region 20 championships and four regular season Maryland Junior College Conference titles. In the 2016-2017 season, the Fighting Owls earned 54 wins, a season record for the program, and made the school's first appearance in the NJCAA World Series. Tom shares in this interview that his purpose was always to help players develop to the next level. During his tenure, Coach Eller helped eight players go from junior college to major league baseball. When I was coaching lacrosse at Harford, Coach Eller was the gold standard for junior college coaching. To our little Maryland community college on the Pennsylvania border, he recruited some of the best talent in baseball and consistently produced winning teams and players who developed to the next level of college ball and, as I've already mentioned, even to the MLB. In this interview, Tom shares how he built a culture of success from the ground up. He did not inherit it. 
He shares how by building relationships with his players and other coaches in baseball, he himself has ascended from the junior college ranks to the MLB. And he shares the power of a growth mindset for succeeding at any level. Please enjoy my cup of coffee with Coach Tom Eller. changed my major uh, to sports management, and I actually graduated with just a general studies major because I knew I was going to uh, grad school after that, um, and I didn't want to have to wait another year to stay in my undergrad. So um, I kind of dabbled in everything. I mostly did sports management, and then uh, I went to Millersville and got my sports management degree. Why did uh, you know you were going to go to graduate school? Did you need a master's for what you uh, Just to what I wanted to do, yeah. yeah. I knew that most coaches needed... Um, so you knew you, you wanted know. to coach? Yeah, I did. Okay, college? Yep. Yeah. And so when you got out of Millersville, was HCC the first place you landed, or where were you? No. So I did uh, like a GA position at Millersville, um, where I just was a grad assistant. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get my, my school paid for it, but um, I was there for a year. And then um, I got offered a job at Wilmington University, where mm-hmm. I played uh, with one of my former coaches. And um, I went there for a year and was, you know, kind of, that's kind of where I learned everything and um and then I kind of put in for a job at Hartford because I had my master's degree. I was like, oh, I need a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, next thing I know, Donna Grove calls me up and she's like, hey, uh, you know, we saw that you applied for this other position. Would you be interested in working part-time in athletics? And I was like, well. What did you apply for? Um, like the non-credit um, sports camps position. Okay. So you remember Kathy Burley? Yeah. I, I applied for her job. Okay. And uh, didn't get it. They passed my resume along. They asked me if I wanted a part-time job. I was like, you know, part-time job, like, I'm a baseball coach. Like, what can you do there? And right. I was actually interviewing with Essex at the same time as the head baseball coach there. Yeah. And um, I got turned down at Essex. Donna called me back, said, hey, uh, our baseball position's open too. Would you be interested? The head I position. Like, I was like, yeah, let's yeah. do it. Yeah. So that's that's kind of how it got started. And that was – so, so you took – that was a – basically part-time position i have to imagine yeah. Like, oh, at yeah. the time right head baseball coach Living in my parents house yeah and, uh, you know just trying to do the best i possibly could and hope that you know in the future to be a full-time position and it and probably after two and a half years i think it turned into a full-time position okay yeah i remember so my i was working at harford mm-hmm. uh, part-time running their leadership programs and thought it'd be fun to coach lacrosse as well mm-hmm. so i got an assistant coaching job at the time under coach donovan was 1100 bucks stipend for the whole oh, yeah. year which i thought was great thinking this is for the season and not appreciating how much recruiting went into yep. a junior college position, which makes sense. But at the time I just never thought about it that mm-hmm. way. And that's why my tenure wasn't long because I knew I wanted to do what I'm doing now, leadership and mm-hmm. team development. And it just wasn't, there's I no talked, for it. there's, no, there's time. no time for it. I right. talked to Hugh a lot about that. He was really supportive of that, but he did say, he goes, you know, because of the program he was building, he goes, I'm looking for guys that want to be head coaches, which mm-hmm. he did get. And, and, and is now who's the head coach there now? Lacrosse. Aaron Verardi. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Aaron, who's done a tremendous job and has done a tremendous job because he's fully invested in coaching. Oh, he's definitely invested too. I mean, yeah. he's there all the time. Yeah. That's what I hear. And he's, you know, he's a part-time guy too. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, he has an end goal. Mm-hmm. And his end goal was probably to to be a Division One lacrosse coach. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. I never talked to him about it, but mm-hmm. I think that's definitely what Hugh was looking for, and that's Hugh's end goal as well. So, yeah. so you get to you get to Hartford, and 
from from what I read online, you guys, the team had, hadn't been in the playoffs for a decade, right? Yeah, and then mess. you guys make the playoffs your first season. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they had won like 13 games in the previous – no, 12 games in the previous three years. How many combined. games do you play in a, a junior college baseball uh, season? Well, when we first started, it was like 40. Okay, and then, and, um, and then it was like 56. But yeah. my first year, you know, they had won uh, 12 games – in the previous three years combined. Wow. So that's like a lot of losing. Yeah. And um, I got there and I won my first six and I was like, this is easy. Right. You know, like, geez, what did you, when you got like, so when were you hired and when did the season start? Uh, I was hired in the summer um, in July. And then I had the whole fall and spring to kind of, I was going to say, so did you away. like recruit right off the bat? Well, oh, yeah, it? I did. Yeah. I did. But I, I probably got hired, uh, I remember I got hired and I was on beach vacation. So it was like the middle of July. So I was still on vacation. I'm making calls to people, that, you know, just trying to get them on campus the following week when I get mm-hmm. back. Um, so I had like a couple weeks to recruit. Um, I, got a, I got a couple kids from the Dominican. Um, got some transfers. Um, but really, I was just trying to get numbers. Yeah. So the first year, we ended up winning 12 games or 13 games. And um, so you won six in a row, six in a row, and then, and it's like, and then 13 uh, the rest yeah, this, of the season. This is not, yeah. this is not very, as easy as I thought it was. So, yeah. uh, yeah. And then the next year, uh, again, we, we still couldn't get the, the good players in the area because they, of the stigma that, mm-hmm. you know, Hartford had. And, um, so what we did was we just had to go out and find, you know, the best players we could, you know, and that kind of sometimes leads to, you know, down another road as far as like what types of kids they are and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So, yeah. We had a rough year. I think we won uh, 16 games or 18 games. We had an All-American. Um, and then the next year was my first, like, real, true, you know, local recruiting class that I got the best players in Harford County. Um, I had some really good players from Central PA, Northern Virginia, Delaware, and um, we started making strides big time. So how'd you pull that off? How'd you go – how'd you break the stigma and bring bring the best players in? Well, you have to have like a – and I'm, I'm reading the book from uh, Simon Sinek right now, Infinite Game. Okay, I haven't um, read it yet. You're reading it right now? It's yeah, good. and it's, it's exactly that. I mean, whether I knew it or not, I had a, a, a purpose, you know, for the future. And um, I was always trying to build – and my, my big thing was we don't have a whole lot of scholarship money here, but we're going to develop you to get you to where you want to go. And – I stayed true to that from day one. And how are you getting that message out? Are you going and meeting with players one on one? I was everywhere. Calling? Yeah. yeah, I was everywhere. I yeah. mean, I would go to um, like there's a thing up in Philly. It's called the Carpenter Cup, and it's basically like every good team in the Philadelphia region, uh, like an all star team of everybody. And I would go up there, and there's you know ten teams full of like thirty kids, and I would go through. I'd buy the book that has all their information in it, and I would just find out who's committed, who's not committed. I'd call them. And say, you know, I would spread my message. Next thing you know, our message started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, we started winning games. Um, the players that we had had a great experience. And I think that's really important to building anything. You have to give a good experience. Mm-hmm. Because if they don't have a good experience, like, why so would talk about that. What I mean, a lot of times the word thrown around is team culture. I think that's the popular word nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and for good reason. I'm not saying that in a demeaning way, but I think I like how you use the word they had a good experience because mm-hmm. a good experience can be winning, but it can be so much more than that as well. The more I've been doing this podcast, I'm talking to a lot of coaches who will say the best, even as a player, the best experiences I've had have not always been on the World Series teams. And at, literally, the, one of the uh, – 
uh, we had a, I haven't interviewed him yet on the podcast, but he's a personal trainer down in Towson who was mm-hmm. at one point, I think, worked in the MLB. And he talked about that, um, that some of the best cultures and experiences he had weren't always on these teams that won at all, but it was just the experience that the coaches created and the players and the commitment they had to what they were going after. Mm-hmm. So how do you, you've got this junior college, how are you creating a, a phenomenal experience to continue yeah. growing the team? Well, I mean, I think what we try to do is we try to go after kids that had uh, uh, like they, they, they had a goal. Mm-hmm. They knew what they wanted to do. Um, they had, you know, an idea of, of what they wanted, what level they wanted to play at. So that's the kids we went after. But at the same time, I think that a lot of people talk about culture and they, they say, you know, I want to create this culture. Um, well, if you have to talk about culture, you know, you, you're not creating a good culture. It doesn't exist. Yeah. So um, what I did was, you know, I just, I continued to, you know, think back on my previous experiences, you know, as a player, what I thought of different coaches. And I had great coaches coming up through college and high school, um, but they were all different. And I took the best qualities from all those coaches and I kind of combined them. And that offered a great experience for people. Um, plus, I started, you know, really getting into how, how kids learn and how, you know, students learn. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized, you know, like after every negative thought, or, or negative thing you say to somebody like, Hey, you, you got to make that player, this and that. Um, you got to say like five positive things to get them to really like stay even keel with everything. Mm-hmm. So, um, I always try to make it, make it understood that, you know, I'm never going to be Bobby Knight. I'm not going to scream, you know, from the dugout and throw a chair out on the field and yeah. go crazy. Um, because I think that's just embarrassing the player and, and that's not a good experience. Now, some, some kids react better to that. And you got to kind of learn who those guys are, and and I kind of put my own spin on it. Um, but at the same time, like you know, when you're making plays, you're having fun. When you're yeah. winning, you're having fun. So let's let's build a winning mentality. How do you put your own? Because it's funny you say like the whole the Bobby Knight kind of example. And so I'm I'm definitely more of the. Uh, I want the player to have a good. Ex- and if a player if a player makes a mistake on the field. I naturally kind of go to a place of, I don't want to say comforting, but from a place of like, they know they made a mistake. They're exactly. pissed off too. Yep. I don't need to remind them of that. I want to I want to teach and coach in this moment. But um, Hugh, who's a great coach on the other side of the spectrum, was is is a, a loud, oh, yelling, yeah. aggressive coach. And so I remember one time we had a player who just made a real bonehead move. I forget what it was, but it was mm-hmm. just, it, 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 it put us in a bad position at the end of a game. And so it was offensive player. So it was my player. I pull him off the field and Hugh calls me over and he's going, you like t- saying to me, like really get into him. You've got to, yeah, like you've got to let him know that how he yeah. screwed up. And so I go over there and I'm talking to him just like I'm talking to you right now. And, and, and we get done and he was like, what was that? Like, what did you? And I was like, I, I, I said what needed to be said. And he was just, from his perspective, it wasn't. And he was a great guy where he just kind of laughed it off. And we realized we have two different styles. But mm-hmm. I, in that moment is when I realized, like, because I was a young coach at the time, it's like, I don't even have it in me to to go there because it's not natural for me yeah in, in my coaching growth which is is youth but but still there's what i've learned is that concept of uh, i just interviewed the unc volleyball coach and he's at unc and so i said to him i go well, you know you're surrounded by all these incredible coaches what do you learn from everybody he's been there for 30 years mm-hmm. and his answer was i've learned don't try to be somebody else yeah don't try to don't try to look at an anson dorrance or a roy williams and say how do i become them it's 
take what they do well. Like you said, I got a lot of coaches growing up. I took what worked from them and I did it in my way. I have my spin on it because that's, it sounds simple to say it here, but a lot of people do try to replicate something else, even if it's not natural to them because it supposedly works. And I think it's just, you got to find your own way to do it. And Mm -hmm. I, and I, and I will say to take a stance of my own, I also agree with you on the side of things of players, uh, it's not going to improve their performance. No doubt. To get them in their head. No doubt. And go and, after And I them. think, too, like when players see you being frustrated, it's like, uh-oh, panic mode starts to set in. It's like if he's mad and he's upset, like we messed up. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we were going to start going into panic mode, and then, then more mistakes happen. So I remember one time we were just talking about this this weekend where, uh, you know, we were, I think we were like 47-7, and seven, and um, this was like two years ago. We had a Division One pitcher pitching for us who originally committed to UMBC and then ended up coming to Hartford. Uh, really good arm. He goes out in the first inning, and again, like we were good. We were really good. We mowed everybody. And he goes out and gives up 10 runs in the first inning. And it wasn't like 10 runs where it was all his fault, like you know, an error here, a walk there, a hit-by-pitch here. Um, the wind got a hold of one and like spun an outfielder around. And I remember he, he, I mean, he was flustered, like absolutely flustered. He walked in the dugout and, uh, you know, at, at this time we're 47 and seven, like it is what it is. Like we almost need a rude awakening. And he walked in the dugout and he just looked at me and I said, it's okay. It's fine. We're going to score 20. <laughs> and for a coach to say that, like, first of all, I was just saying it just to say it Yeah. because I wanted him to calm down and, um, just relax because we had a really good offense. And uh, sure enough, we won 2010. Mm. So they didn't score another run the rest of the game, and we, wow. we put up 20. Um, so just to give guys, like, you know, the – to have confidence in the coaching staff and say, okay, everything's going to be okay. If, he said, if, if he's acting like everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be okay. Right. So – How many guys do you typically have on a college – like a, a Harvard junior team? college team? Junior college team. Man. I mean, I think some years we had 70 in the fall. Yeah. And, again, that's – it, a lot of people would say, you know, that's over recruiting, but but I have to play, I have to take into factor all all the possible things that could happen. We could have a kid, you know, fails classes, which you know, obviously we're working hard with them, but there's some kids that just aren't students. Mm-hmm. And you got to try to mold them. So we could lose kids academically. We could lose kids because, you know, they didn't know what college baseball was, and they just they they're not cracked up for it. I mean, we practice. We, there's no off season in baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, your off season is when you're you know, during the summer, and then you're playing on a summer league. Yeah, um, a lot of people don't appreciate that, in my experience, at any level of college sports. Yeah, there's no Going back to what we said, like, if you if you know your end goal as a coach mm-hmm. is to is to maybe be a head coach at the Division One level or Major League or wherever, or even just to win a national championship or World Series at yeah. the JUCO level, then you are going to play and practice no different than those higher level teams. And I've worked with a lot of young players who will say, well, I'm not that passionate about the sport, so I'm going to play D2 or D3 or, or Juco. And it probably doesn't work out for them. It never does. Yeah. I've never seen it work out. And I say, I go, you, you, and I, maybe it used to be this way. I always say, then look for a coach that doesn't take it that seriously, yeah. which I and don't. Then it's not going to be fun because you're not going to be winning. Like, yeah, then you're not going to be winning yeah. and, and, and it's just going to be screwing around. So it's kind of that fine line of like, I'll often say, then don't play in college. Like, yeah. go play intramural, go play club, and that's yeah. fine too. But but like you said, I mean, you're you're practicing and playing at the junior college level no different than if this individual were playing top division one. Yep. Uh, in, in between injuries and grades and, you know, just life and school. Um, 
you get to 35 pretty quick, and that's what our roster was. So, um, And we would set up plans for guys. So, like, we might have a kid coming in. So 70 in the fall, but then 35 comes springtime. Yep. Yeah. And there's other guys are redshirting. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is is having a plan set up for guys, like knowing that so-and-so is not a, a strong academic student, so he's going to have to be here for three years. So one of those years, he's going to have to redshirt. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a lot of those guys. We had a lot of those guys where we, you know, they came in, they weren't qualifiers Division One or Division Two, and um, – we turn them into Division One students, mm-hmm. not just Division One players, but students, students. Because you can't be a player if you're not a student. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it all it always worked out. Um, so, how are you doing? I guess so. The reason I asked the size of the team is how are you doing that with seventy guys? Uh, you got to get creative. Yeah, <laughs> we only have. I mean, we had two fields really, but we only practiced on one. Yeah. And um, honestly, you know, I, I was a full time. Um, athletic administrator there too so i was mm-hmm. in charge of all the athletic facilities so it's, it's not like i can practice from 12 to 6 every day right. and have two team practices so uh that's i i attribute that to a lot of my success as far as like understanding how to be organized with practice how to do things in practice to to get as much done as possible um so we would come up with all kinds of different things to do and, and a lot of that's just competing mm-hmm. um but then you mix in you know your lifting schedules and all that kind of stuff um, and it's pretty crazy. Yeah. It's what were some crazy. of the things you did? Like, what was your, did you have like a, a routine for how you set up your day? It's funny. Cause it, no, I didn't. Yeah. I, I kind of played it off what we needed. Um, you know, a lot of times we did, you know, our, our typical practice would be, you know, we were in the cage early before practice even started just doing early work stuff. And then, um, we would go into like individual defense. So like, you know, I had the infielders, our outfield guy had the outfielders, pitchers are with the pitchers and then catchers had their, their own time. So, we would do that for 15, 20 minutes. Then we'd break into a real quick uh, team defense for that day, or, or maybe it was base running. And then um, with 70 guys, you got to figure out how to do on the field BP too. So what we would do is we would um, we would sometimes break the field up into two cages, and we'd have two pitching machines throwing live to two hitters at the same time. So we'd put two turtles out there, and we'd hit hit live. And um, that's that's an easy way to get a lot of a lot of swings in mm-hmm. uh, because if not then you got guys that aren't getting the amount of swings that they need you know to become better so mm-hmm. um, just things like that any and then how are you managing the classroom side of things so you're you're overseeing so the, the even cool 35 guys that, a lot. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the really cool thing about that was in the beginning it was a nightmare so I was always like walking around going to classes making sure people were in class you know study hall all that kind of stuff uh, setting up tutors and then as we started getting the guys that we originally wanted that had a goal in sight, I backed off mm. because I don't have – like, you know what you want to do. Here, Here's our – you know, here's what you have to do in order to go to Division One. You have to graduate. You have to have, you know, all your core credits. You have to have this GPA. You have to do this. You have to do that. So we gave that to them and said, you know, here you go. And then if they slipped up a little bit, we would adjust that. And, you know, that a two-year guy may, maybe comes into a – being a three-year guy because, you know, he had a rough semester or whatever. Um, but that's what I became really good at as far as, like, you know, understanding what they need to get to certain places mm-hmm. and then adjusting on the fly to make sure that, you know, we get get them in the right situation. So how did you know – because you said that earlier, so I want to come back to that. Like, you you find these guys that – so you have your vision, you have your mission, you have your goals as a team, mm-hmm. and you're, you're communicating that in the recruiting process. How do you know the player – isn't just telling you what they want I mean, you to hear or you're, you're really getting a sense from them of what their goals are. You know, they always say, like, you, like I can spot somebody who's blown smoke mm-hmm. because, you know, I deal with it all the time. So what I would do is 
um, I would just talk to him like a like you know a big brother almost. Um, I didn't talk to to players like a like a typical coach. Uh, I'd have fun with them, um, and they you know respected that and they would say well you know they would they would tell me the truth on anything like it, it might have been that my best player was like coach i don't know why we did this today i think this is stupid mm-hmm. and i've been like okay well let's not do it again <laughs> so um you know sometimes you hit and miss mm-hmm. you hit you hit hit one out of the park with this guy and then you know you think this guy's going to be the guy and um it doesn't work out so how to- did you so because i think what's cool is uh um the way I, I when I was at HCC, I obviously saw the success of of your team and saw you. I remember you're, you're describing this practice of all these guys out there. I remember seeing yeah, that yeah. and just oh, yeah. it. There's an energy to it and a fun to it. Yep. And and so now I'm learning how intentional you were about all that. Mm-hmm. When it, the the counter that a lot of people say, so you're you're you know talking to them like a big brother. You're you're open to their input. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're trusting them to live up to their end of the deal how did you manage discipline? Like, cause I think that's where the reason coaches don't do what you're talking about yeah. in my opinion is because this sense of controlling and discipline and that kind of thing. So how'd you manage yeah, that? I mean, again, like being the big brother, I think you, you, you look at things and yeah, you want to have fun with, with your little brother, you know, you want to have fun with them, but at the same time, you know, what's dangerous and you know, what's, you know, not good for them. And you know, from your previous mistakes. Um, and that's what I would do. I would just be straight up honest with them. I would say, you know, like you're really screwing up in the classroom. Like, if you think you can go play Division One, um, I mean, I'm telling you right now, your, your chances are slim. Mm-hmm. And I remember we had one kid who was a really good player for us starting. I mean, he started every game for us um, our World Series year, but he screwed up in the classroom during the spring. And I told him, I was like, listen, dude, you, you have to redshirt next year. And he was like, no, I don't want to redshirt. And I was like, well, I don't – I mean, you, you didn't do it this past year, so how are you going to do double the work? And still be a good baseball player and do all, and do everything that you need to do. I was like, it's impossible. Like you've already shown me you can't do that. And uh, he just kept insisting. Like, I mean, we had probably ten different meetings during the summer, and I was just like, I don't see you doing this. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did it. He didn't read. I I told him I set goals for him. I said, hey, you got to pass uh, nine credits in the summer with at least a three zero. He did that. In the fall, I said, okay, you're not out of the woods yet. Like, you have to pass 18 credits with over a 3-0. And then that's the final decision. Then we can say you're not redshirt. Mm-hmm. He did it. So I was like, all right, you know. He still had he still had to take 21 credits in the spring. Wow. But well they played. were a little bit yeah. easier courses. Yeah. We got the tough ones out of the way. Um, and he did it. He it worked out for him. Yeah, he went yeah. to James Madison. Wow. So, How yeah. did he do there? He, he did, did pretty well his first yeah. year. Yeah. He was a starter for him. So. Yeah. So how so you're meeting with this this player you said ten times over the summer. Oh yeah. Do you have did you have kind of like a did you meet with every player on a regular basis? Did you have a, mm-hmm. a system like that? So what we would do is um, we would have our end of fall meetings to kind of like let everybody know where they're at because I thought that was really important. Like if if somebody doesn't know where they're at and where they stand in the program, you know, if you're the fiftieth guy on the roster and you're thinking you're the the twentieth, and I tell you you're redshirt in the in the fall, it's like what do you mean? Yeah, blindsided. You know, like blindsided. Yeah. And that that's where a lot of coaches get it wrong because they don't communicate well enough with the co- the players because then they get blindsided and they're like, all right, I'm leaving. And then you might have lost a really good player. Um, so I made sure that I really communicated that with our with our guys and make them understand um, up front. Even if it was a freshman coming in, I would say, hey, listen, we have, two, we have, we have five guys that are going to play ACC, SEC baseball in the outfield. 
Like, I'm not saying you're not better than them, but it might not be. I still want you because I think you're going to be our guy as a freshman after you redshirt. Um, but it's it, you're going to waste a year if you play behind those guys. Mm-hmm. So let's just redshirt, learn from everything, and then the next year when I need that position, then it's, it's going to be yours to take. Mm-hmm. And guys respected that. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how many guys we kept there after I told guys that they're redshirting because mm-hmm. I had a goal for them. I, I knew what I was doing with them. It wasn't just like, hey, you're redshirting, figure it out. You know, mm-hmm. I, I gave them a plan. So, well, and it sounds like you have a – over 13 years, you amassed a history of doing what you said you were going to do. Like they had a oh, reason yeah. to trust you because yep. there were players that had done that before. And it's funny at the end, and you talk about discipline, you know, and I would always, I would always joke about it, but I would always say, Hey, you know, like I make the lineup, you know what I mean? So like, just don't screw around. Like we're, we're all here for one reason. Like we're all trying to get better. We're all trying to, to get to whatever goal it is that we have. Um, and I know what it takes to get there. And I write the lineup every day. Mm-hmm. So don't make me not write your lineup in there or your name on the lineup. And um, they would always laugh because it's like, that's a threat, you know. But I, <laughs> it's and, a reality. I'm, I'm joking. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm, there's a, a bit of seriousness, seriousness, seriousness to it. And yeah. um, it's, it's just like they appreciated that. Yeah. So I was talking to a coach one time and uh, we, we were doing a I, – I, I worked at the team that season, so we did our, our team culture leadership training with them. And typically when I do that, I'm, I'm with the players quite a bit. So the coaches – I have found, well, if they're if the coaches decide who the captain is, then they'll usually ask me. And I never know what year a player is unless they bring it up because I don't look it up. I just don't want to know. I have no interest. For me, it doesn't mean anything from the leadership side of things. And so one time the coach asked me, you know, who should be a captain this year? And I mentioned a player and he goes, you know, she's a freshman. And I said, no, I didn't know that. I go, I, I, you're asking me my opinion. Yeah. I go, I'm not in practice every day. I'm not at games. You do what you want to do, but that's my opinion based on what I've seen. And so he calls me a couple of days later, said he went to this particular player and said, um, you know, I want to make because he agreed with me and he goes, I'd like to make you a captain. Mm-hmm. And she said, she goes, Oh no, that's crazy. Cause I'm a freshman. And he goes, so you want me to take into consideration the year <laughs> that you are for this? And she goes, yeah. He goes, would you like me to take that into consideration when I think about your playing time? <laughs> for real, for real. And she was like, no, 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 no. And, and but it just reminded me of that. Cause it's like, you know, his point was just, he was saying to her, like, I like, I'm looking at everything you do. I'm looking mm-hmm. at all your decisions, looking at how you show up to decide like, if, if that's your mentality for even this position. And I understand it, mm-hmm. but is that going to be your mentality when you hit the field? Because certainly there's freshmen that show up from day one and say, I'm ready to play, I'm ready to go. If you want to make me a captain, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And and But I think he, he made point to me, you're laughing, saying I control your you know the lineup. Yeah. And he said, he goes, I do, because he's a, he's a similar coach to you where he has relationships with his players. They, mm-hmm. they, sh- they challenge him. They tell him when they don't agree with him and 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 at the same time he sits back and says this is all great and remember i'm in control of who goes yeah, out there yeah, yeah. not not from a threat of like if you if you cross me you're not going to play reality. but it's reality yeah. Of, yeah. of all that is going into consideration when i decide who's going to hit the field or not yeah and i tried to you know as loose as i was around all of our players like we had a kid that was there for three years like one of the one of the greatest teammates and just players that i ever had and um, I still talk to him today all the time. I mean, we're like, have a group text with each other. Like we're always talking, but he knew that there was a hard land or a hard line in the sand at some point. Mm-hmm. And he knew never to touch, you know, to try to go over that. And he knew I wouldn't go over that. And um, that's, I think really important as a coach, you have to draw lines in the sand as far as, you know, 
what's too far. And I think a lot of people get um, in trouble when they're just trying to be friends with the players. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I enjoyed being friends with them, but at the same time, they knew I meant business. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll be fr- I'll be a friend with you all the way up to it it hurting or hindering our, our success. Is that a feeling that line? How do you know where that line is? Um, yeah, I think it is a feeling. Um, you just have to, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I learned from a lot of mistakes from coaches that, um, I either coached with or coached on, or I played under. Mm -hmm. Um, so there were a lot of things that I knew right away. Like, you know, I'm, that's something that I'm never going to be doing. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to be conscious of that. And, um, you know, I, I just, I guess it's just something that you, they, you just kind of gain respect for that and they know not to even just test that boundary. So, right. um, it, it was, I, I think I had a great relationship with all of our players. Even, even if you're the worst player on the team, like I respected you if you busted your butt right? and, uh, they knew that. Um, how so. did you balance? So, cause at, at your level, you are develop. You, part of your pitch for recruiting is come here and we will develop you to the, for the next level. At the same time, you all won a number of, you know, championships region mm-hmm. championships you went to the world series uh did your players care about that like were they competitive was it just a sheer competitiveness to want to win at the junior college level or or uh, did you have man. players that were really focused on their own personal i mean i think everybody's always focused on their own personal thing yeah um because that's what they're there i mean that's what's really hard about baseball it is a team sport but you're playing junior college baseball where you're trying to move on to a division one school so um, I always talked about the development side of it. Let's do things the right way. And then winning will take care of itself. And it did. Like, mm-hmm. I never talked about winning. You know, this year's goal was to win 52 games. Like, so your focus was on the development of the player. Yeah. The, yeah. Wi- the winning was just part of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, the process was to develop players and make them, you know, grow as, as, as not only just student athletes, but as people too. And um, I think that's what's the most important. We, we sent a lot of guys to four-year schools, and, and they were – mature and ready to to dig in and really help the team first was that a sales pit not in a bad way but even to be able to say you're not just coming here for one year and Mm -hmm. then going on to like how do you get them to stay for two or three i mean i guess but even if they stay for three they're only using they're losing two years of eligibility correct okay yeah so um I, i mean honestly it was just again i was honest with them like if if they got an offer after the first year that i didn't think was was good i was like listen man like you can come back and do more um, I remember one year we had a kid, uh, Jamie Pashik, who he was supposed to go to Western Carolina out of high school, last second decided to come to Hartford, and um, came in. He wasn't great in the fall, but we, we were honest with him. And I knew he was going to be a big part of our program, but I knew that if I wasn't honest with him and told him, hey, you suck this fall, mm-hmm. you know, then he, he was just going to continue to do what he did. And he got a lot better from the fall to the spring, and then next thing you know, um, I had uh, Eric Backish, who was the head coach at Maryland, he was like, hey, we really need a left-handed arm. Like, tell me about this passion kid. So they came out and watched him. I was like, listen, he's raw. Like, he's gotten a lot better. And that's something else. I, I never wanted to say, oh, he's the greatest player ever. Like, come see him for yourself. Like, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't want people to think that I'm just saying things about people. To You're just trying to get your kids to exactly. great schools so just you can come grow see your own program. Just come yeah. see him. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, their pitching coach came, Sean Kenny, and uh, – after the game, he came up to the edge of the fence and he was like all flustered. I'm like, everything all right? And he was like, raw? He ain't raw. He's 86, 89 with a nasty slider and a nasty changeup. Yeah. He's like, we, we want him. And I'm like, all right. I mean, he's a freshman. And I would always tell coaches at four-year schools, like, listen, don't 
like, cause there's, there's some junior college coaches that will put on their roster. Do not talk to my freshmen. And I, I thought, why do they do that? Because they're selfish. Yeah. You know, like I think they, they, they think too much about the winning side of it. If, if a kid gets a great offer and he gets 60% to go to play at university of Maryland in the ACC at the time, like who am I to say, no, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you want to go do that, go do it. I think it's a great opportunity. Um, so I, I always explain that to either four-year coaches and, and our, our guys. But at the same time, I think because of the culture that we, we created, and again, I think the culture is, is not talking about culture. I think it's how I act as a leader, how I follow through things as a leader, what I think is important, uh, what the players think are important. And um, the culture was such so awesome. I mean, I had, a, I had a kid, one of the same kids I was talking about earlier, he, he uh, got 60% to go to Tulane after his freshman year and came back in mid-spring and was like, hey, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go to Tulane next year. I'm coming back. And I'm like, I got nervous. I was like, yeah. whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Yeah. And I'm thinking, like, I don't know if I can get this kid, like, another big-time scholarship like that. Like, that's putting a lot of pressure on me and you. Mm -hmm. Like, is that a really good decision? And um, he was adamant about it. You know, he's like, I love it here. Um this is where I want to be. I, I want to go to a program that fits me for who I am and the type of player I am. And uh, he came back and he ended up getting a huge scholarship to go to University of St. Louis. Um, so, and he, he was really happy with that decision. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And it sounds like the core of your culture, like you said, don't mm -hmm. talk about it, just is relationships. Like mm -hmm. every story you've told so far has been a personal relationship with a player. And and that's why I would ask, like, you know, how often do you meet with them? What's your this? What's your that? And at some level, it's intentional, but it also seems natural of mm -hmm. just you care about these individuals. You want to see them be successful at that. If that means they go to Tulane that first year, great. If it means they come back because they want to be a part of, of what you're growing and building, or they want to find a better, better place to and fall. And some of that is... is is creating more problems for me in different areas. So for instance, like I always told them, you know, any issues you have, anything you want to talk about, text me, call me, whatever. Well, next thing you know, like we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. like my phone was like crazy. Like I use more data on my plan than anybody, any other employee at Hartford. Yeah. <laughs> by I like it. double. Yeah. And, um, you know, you start cutting into your family time and stuff like that. Um, but I think my mentality with things like I'm so laid back, like I don't let really anything really bother me. So I was able to kind of like not panic about it and just, you know, if I didn't, if I couldn't talk to somebody, I'd just be like, listen, dude, I'll call you tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Like I can't talk to you. Right. Um, so I, it, you know, there's always give or take here and there, but um, it worked out. How did you manage that family dynamic when you are so invested with, with that many guys? Well, again, like I think, thank God for my wife, but like she saw me in the first like five, five, six years of, of, you know, what Hartford was and what I was trying to make it that was the toughest times mm -hmm. because I was always on the phone. I was always, you know, you know, I'm off today, but I have to go down for a two o'clock recruit. And then after that, I have a four o'clock recruit, you know, so there was never really an off day. Did she know that that's what this job was going to be even at the junior no. college level? Yeah. No. Did <laughs> but you, she, but no, I did. I, I could, yeah. because again, I knew what it took to You'd become. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But she didn't know. Okay. No, she didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, once we started getting everything rolling, like I could kind of, and, and we were getting really good assistance too. Like I was having assistants who played for me come back and play mm -hmm. and, and want to be a coach. So now it was like I have to trust them and believe in them that I taught them the correct way. Mm -hmm. So I would let them kind of – I just – 
pull the reins back and say, go, just, I'll take them off. Just go, mm-hmm. go do your thing. And mm-hmm. then if they had some issues, like I was always there to talk to them about it. Um, but you know, and, and sometimes that, that kind of blow up, blows up in your face a little bit. Like I, I remember one year I let one of our assistants do all the recruiting and it wasn't a great year. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we had like, I think we, I think we finished 500 that year, mm-hmm. like in the middle of like just coming off a 47 win season. Right. And we were 500. And, uh, part of that is because of our schedule and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you got to kind of reevaluate things and, and figure out what, what went wrong, how it went wrong, how to help your assistants get better. Um, because ultimately I don't want to be the one doing everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't want to be a micromanager. I right. want our guys to understand what I'm doing, just like I did with my, my full-time job at Hartford. Like my now head coach at Hartford, uh, RJ Heinlein was my assistant. He knows in and out how everything works, why I did things, the reasonings behind it. And, um, so when I left for the Orioles, um, you know, I was very confident that he not only knew the baseball side of it, but he could do my job at mm-hmm. Hartford mm-hmm. Uh, with his eyes closed. Yeah. Part it's of that's great me. For them. Yeah, yeah, it's great for them. It's great for him because yeah. he's getting an opportunity. But at the same time, um, it also helped me out because, like, I could say, hey, RJ, I need you to help me with this, this, and that. He was always there for it. So yeah. he learned. Working. And on that, I mean, thinking about the assistant coaches you've had at, at a junior college level where they're not getting paid a ton, if yep. maybe not at all, um, some of them, and then and then coming into the Orioles, and you talked earlier about, obviously, the college coaches that you know, that's a big part of your relationships with them is a big part of where your, where your players go. We've talked a lot about the relationships with you and your players. How have you, over the past almost 15 years, cultivated relationships with other coaches within the baseball community? Well, I mean, I think that's the – I remember my first year I called uh, – Coach, Coach Sherman at Delaware, and I was like, hey, you know, I knew him because of, of previous experiences. Uh, I knew him really well, and I was like, hey, you know, any guys that you don't think are going to be a good fit, you know, I'll take them. You know, I'll, I'll help. And then same thing, if you need something next year, like let me know, not only on my team, but I'll, I'll be on lookout. I mean, I see, you know, 40 other teams during the year. Like mm-hmm. if I see somebody that I think could help you and you're in need for that, I'll call you. And... um you know, just the amazing, you know, when you're out recruiting, just being being able to talk to guys and, like, they understand, like, what your beliefs are and uh, that you're a good dude. Mm-hmm. And uh, next thing you know, they, like, they start helping you and you start helping them and it's just, it evolves. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's not all on me. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot on them, too, for, for reaching out and trying to get as many resources as possible. But mm-hmm. a lot of it's just, you know... Uh, networking. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just got back from the ABCA convention, which is the biggest coaches convention. And I had more fun talking to people that I've never met before, um, that were asking me questions, uh, sharing information with them rather than just sitting there listening to the speakers. The speakers are great, but you know, you learn more from, you know, other people's perceptions of things like, mm-hmm. you know, like you might do something because that's how you've always done it. And you know, it's the right way, but maybe you, you kind of lose focus of, of really what you're trying to do. Like you were talking about the poke checking earlier. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if I was doing poke checking all the time and all of a sudden, you know, it's not a thing anymore, like that's something I got to figure out. Mm-hmm. And maybe somebody else like you say, why are you guys poke checking? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. That's how you find really out it's not know. a thing anymore. I don't know yeah. why I do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really important. I think that's what I did a great job with. Um, you know, I think I worked at a golf course when I was younger so like I'm always trying to make those tips 
So I had to <laughs> know how to talk to people, yeah. you know, on, on the right end. I, I sold stuff on, you know, telemarketing for a year. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to have a way to communicate with people and not just come off cold or, or hard or rigid or anything yeah. like that. You got to be able to, you know, kind of schmooze them a little bit. But at the same time, like, you can't lie about anything. Mm-hmm. As soon as you find out, or as soon as they find out you lied about anything, then it's, it's out the window. Relationships over. Yeah, the trust yeah. is gone. Broken. So yeah. Um, but I, I I accredit a lot of my uh, my recruiting from working at the golf course, cleaning people's bags and you know, taking their That's bags cool. and all that kind of stuff. Because you know, as a as a kid in high school, and you're you know you're quiet, and then all of a sudden you know, oh, I can make five dollars if I just you know, hey, how you doing today? Blah, blah, yeah. Blah, blah. yeah. It's it teaches you right away. It's yeah. like, it, anything can be learned. I should say. Yeah. Well, and I think too, what's cool is you know, in the world of uh, connecting, the consistent number one thing is always be of service to other people. Oh yeah. Like from the get go. So like you even said with the Delaware coach of saying, I see forty other games a mm-hmm. year. I'm not just going to be sending you my kids because that's good for my resume building. Yep. I'll send you whatever kid is going to fit your program that's going to serve you well. And and it's just. It's just being a decent human being. Yeah, doing I mean, the right I, had, thing. I had a just cause. Yeah. Like, you, you, I'm reading that book with Simon Sinek, and uh, he talks about just cause. Now, a just cause it is more for, like, the world. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? My just cause was, like, a bigger picture of our program. Yeah. Um, so I knew what I had to do in order to, you know, create the, the, um, just, just for people to start talking that's about it. That's the way to distill it down, though. Like a reason a guy like Simon Sinek will say the just causes for the world is because you do want to go big picture with it. Yeah. That, that, it it's inspiring for people to see the big but picture. But people really latched on to my my reasoning behind yes. what I did. Yeah. So, and that's and it wasn't just like how we played or anything like that. It was like, oh yeah, like I, I have goals like yours as well, mm-hmm. and I want I'll do anything for you because I believe in your goals. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and just, you know, again, what you said earlier, even even I said, how do you read a, a player to know that they're they're sincere and genuine? And a lot of it does come down to that feeling. A lot of it does come down to just trusting your gut with, with certain sometimes things. sometimes it's just like, just let them fail. Yeah. You know, I mean, if they lie to me, I mean, oh, well, let's see if they can learn from it. It's on them. And yeah. if, if they don't learn from it and they do it again, well, then we have an issue. Right. So. Yeah. And what, uh, so tell us, so now we're here, we're at, uh, you know, Ironbird Stadium. What's your current position with the Orioles? So this year I'll be the hitting coach for the Frederick Keys, which is uh, advanced at. Okay. What does a hitting coach do for those who've never heard of that? Well, I mean, I'm in charge of all the offense. Um, I'm also probably going to be working with either the outfielders, the infielders, but um, basically coming up with plans every single day, trying to get these guys who have been recently drafted to the major leagues. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, that, that could be multiple multiple things really i mean it could be mechanical it could be just the fact that you know they're not thinking right um that's what i was gonna ask you so how much of the job is is you know i'm sure you could do a whole hour podcast on the technical side of things um so how much of the job is technical how much of the job is mindset relationships doing kind of the same stuff you've done well i think in anything you do yeah i mean just like in your job yeah you you have to have a relationship Mm -hmm. um you wouldn't be like hey hey tom can, can i get you to do this podcast with me like you know, and just act like it was nothing. Right. I have to make these guys understand like, hey, I'm here for you. You know, no matter what happens, I'm here trying to get you to the major leagues. I, that's that's my only goal. Mm-hmm. And um, once once they understand that, it uh, makes everything a lot easier. In the beginning, you know, sometimes you have to kind of break barriers and, and um, you know, sometimes you have to just deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but once you break those barriers and they understand that, then a lot of it's just like communication because like in hitting, you know, you might not put a great swing on a ball or you might be in a bad place, but you get a hit. It doesn't mean that you want to do the exact same thing, you know, every single time. I always, I always relate it to like, um, you know, how many, how many times you've ever ran a red light mm-hmm. and people are like, uh, you know, a few, few times here and there. And I'm thinking like, yeah, and, but that's not something you want to continuously do because eventually it's going to catch up to you. Right. And it's, eventually, you know, it's putting your life in danger. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, just because it, it was a good result doesn't always mean that it's going to be, um, the process wasn't good. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, that specific example. I just got a red light camera ticket, oh, like nice. 75 bucks. There's no <laughs> way to dispute it. Yeah. And, uh, uh, we were actually coming back from Sykesville. We went up there to get a, like cut down a Christmas tree. So it was like a month ago or so. Mm-hmm. And so the trees on top of the car and I don't trust myself in tying a tree on top of my car. So I didn't want to hit the brakes at the red light. Yeah, you know? the yeah. Intersection. Yeah. So, so I decided to just speed up and go through the intersection and made it through. And at the time I, I saw the flash go. So I knew I was going to get a ticket and that's all I care. I was like, ah, at the time I was mad about that. But you literally get a video of your car going through. It's not just a picture now, it's a video. So I get to watch this video and it was like a four intersection way and I'm coming through and what I see in the video and I didn't see at the time is there's four lanes of cars that were starting to drive Mm -hmm. as I am right in front of them, you know? And so I think they paused for a second because they saw me, but all it takes is one person not to see me. And it's funny because like at the time, let's say I didn't get a ticket for that. Mm-hmm. And I just ran, it would have been an innocuous thing. Never thought about it again. Yeah. Just, Hey, I made the light, not appreciating that. The split decision could have been, mm-hmm. could have been awful. And, yeah. and that's exactly just because the result is good yeah, in that yeah. moment. Yeah. Doesn't mean my process is, makes sense. Doesn't mean I should do it again and be repetitive with it. Yeah. How do you, so you get these guys who are drafted mm-hmm. who are, who are at a young age, Maybe they're not they're not in the major leagues yet, but they're they're at a point where they're they're playing in the minors. Mm-hmm. Do you have to earn their respect when you're trying to especially teach them a new way to hit and perform? Yeah, I mean definitely. Yeah. I think I think what helps us today in our age is that we have technology that can, um, you know, I can say, hey, you you got to do this more, you got to do this less, or or this is the proper mechanic here, or this is the proper thought process. Um, but until they really like see quantitative results as far as like yeah okay well if if it can hold up in court you know what i mean like i always say that too like if it can hold up in court because of science then it's real so like if i can say hey you know you're 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 losing your scap too early which is causing you to lose power and consistency well well i've always done that you know i was very successful at wherever yeah that's my point you know and (laughs) but then you start showing them you know quantitative data saying okay this is what's going to happen here's some video and it, it, today's learner is like so like video based they have to see it they have to feel it so that's that's what i try to get them to understand first yeah i'll show them the numbers and i'll show them you know their their hitting graph or whatever how their kinematic sequence works mm-hmm. um but until they can feel it and it clicks you know that's that's what we try to get to right away um so yeah i mean the technology helps me because um you know i can just say here Look. Do you do you think that that growth mindset basically of the players can that be taught at this level? Like they're already here. Yeah. Can it be taught at this level, or do they? It, does a player come in and can you tell pretty quickly if they're going to embrace this or not? I mean, that's what the Orioles are all about now, and yeah. I think that um, you know we we hired a lot of new player uh, new coaches this year, and one 
staple that they all had to have was they had to have a growth mindset. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, that's what helped me get hired. Um, you know, I, I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to find out who does and I'm going to try to figure out, figure it out along the way. And, um, you know, this spring, when we go to spring training, I mean, that's going to be, we're going to present about growth mindset to all of our players and make them understand, like, listen, you know, we don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. Um, let's, let's work this together. We're going to make the best educated decision as possible, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the way. And let's become better. We're going to, we're here to help you. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it, there's no, yeah, there's, there's going to be bumps in the road and all that kind of stuff. But in, in the long run, we're here to help you to get you to the next, the next level. Yeah. So. Well, it's interesting. Cause I, so I had, um, my first interview on this podcast is a guy named Harry Swain. He was the director of player development for the Ravens at the time. Mm-hmm. And I met him through 50 cups of coffee, through connecting with people, sitting down talking. And finally someone was like, you really got to talk to Harry. And so reason being, he and I just hit it off. We have a lot in common. We share a lot of the same ideas and mentalities. And so he invited me to basically be a fly on the wall for the Ravens, like rookie first day, the rookies were there mm-hmm. and they're, he does a presentation and then a nutritionist does a presentation and then, you know, somebody else does a presentation and I'm just a fly on the wall and I got a notebook there and I'm taking all these notes because I'm mm-hmm. fascinated by it. And I look around the room and I go to Harry, I'm not kidding. I go, no one's taking notes. And he goes, yeah, I know. And I go, why don't you tell him to take notes? He goes, cause I want to see who's going to take notes. Like I'm paying attention to that. Yeah. And they eventually do get them to take notes, but they come in with this mentality of just, there is a certain chip on your shoulder of, I think a lot of times too, you see, like when you see someone you look up to is not taking notes, then you're like, well, I'm not gonna be that guy. To I'm not gonna. Notes. I'm gonna be the first to, guy to pull out the notepad. But yeah. What you will see happen is like start, guys start picking up their phones, they start taking pictures yeah. of like the slides and things like that. And then I, what I also noticed was um, guys will come back to you after after the presentation was over, and they're like, hey, can I get that? Can I get that presentation? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but like I wish you would have paid attention more during yeah. the presentation so we could have like you know talked about or it or even ask, the amount of questions i get after a presentation used to shock me it doesn't anymore i yeah, just i almost don't ask for questions anymore during yep. because it's because just everybody's like, afraid to, yeah i'll to give out my cell phone i'll say if you got a question text me call me meet me afterward i don't care and i i've I'll, i find myself sometimes staying like i used to book my travel pretty tight after a presentation now i'll book it like four hours later, mm-hmm. knowing that, especially with teams, knowing that I'm going to be yeah, you don't be rushing out of there. around for a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's, that's that's what I just said about the convention too. Like there was tons of great speakers and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, for me to get up on stage and, and you remember JT McGuire? JT McGuire was one of my assistants. Um, the name sounds familiar. He's but... with the Indians now. Okay. And he was one of the, the main speakers in front of 8,000 people. I saw you put, I saw yeah. you tweet about this. Yeah. yeah so yeah, he, yeah, uh, that's I stayed with him, uh, at the convention and, and, uh, he was like, yo, can you look over my, my, uh, my slides? And I was mm-hmm. like, dude, this is amazing. Yeah. And of course, right afterwards, you know, you got some questions, but they weren't really great questions. And then the next thing I know, I'm walking through the hallway and I hear people talking about it and I'm like, why didn't you just ask him at the, yeah. qu- you know, at the yeah. question and answer? Yeah. Um, you know, ask those questions. And I think so many people are afraid to be wrong Mm -hmm. um, that they just don't want to put themselves out there and say, yeah, I asked that dumb question. Mm -hmm. You know, who cares? Well, and that's why I always laugh because we'll say it's, it's young kids or it's, it's the players and it's like, no, everybody's the same way. Yeah. You know, Uh, uh, I have a a colleague who does work with the Redskins and she said, you mentioned your phone. She said, there's a player in the back of the room one time she was doing a presentation on like, I think it was growth mindset or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and players got his phone out. And so on a break, she goes over 
over and wants to check his phone and he'd been taking pictures and videos the whole yeah, time. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And that's but, what you gotta be careful. Yeah. Like, I, I talked to my wife about that. I was like, yeah, you know, I always take notes on my phone and she was like, no, don't ever do that. And I was like, why? I'm taking notes. Yeah. And she was like, no, cause it looks like you're texting people. And I was like, she's like, you can only do that if you have an iPad or a computer. And I'm like, come on. I like the phone though. Like I have Evernote on my phone and, yeah, yeah. and, uh, yeah, I do it all the time. But it too. does, it does yeah. put off. I get it. No, I a hundred percent get it. And, so. uh, but I think you're right. People, people aren't going to ask those questions, raise their hand in yep. those kind of moments. Um, so the theme of this whole thing is 50 cups of coffee, you know, which is that concept as there's 52 weeks in a year. Are you taking time? I, I say once a week, but it's just over the course of a year. I think it's pretty reasonable to say I'm meeting and connecting with 50 people, whether it's new people, whether it's the same people, it's someone you talk to weekly on the phone. And then I always love to ask towards the end of this, do you, it doesn't have to be a tremendous story, but like, do you have, uh, what I call a 50 cups of coffee experience? Do you have a story of, of you got a player, you got a job, you've got, maybe you, you met someone could be personal, even outside of baseball that came about, I mentioned Harry quite a bit on this podcast. Cause he and I met just because I'd been continuing every time I'd meet with someone for coffee, I'd say, who else should I be talking to? And mm-hmm. they'd introduce me to somebody else, somebody else, somebody else. And now I have a a mentor and a guy like Harry Swain. And I think that stuff happens way more than people give credit to. So do you have a, a story that, that kind of illustrates well, I mean, that? It kinda like, it's kind of, kind of adding everything into one. Like, yeah. uh, one of my friends, Jeremy Schiedinger did the, uh, ABCA podcast and it got huge and he worked for, um, American baseball coaches association. He had a weekly podcast that is right now. It w- was one of the top podcasts in all of podcasts. Mm-hmm. And, um, he just recently took a job with uh, Gwinnett down in Georgia, NAIA. And I saw him this weekend and I said, um, you know, congrats, this and that. And, and I was like, so I knew this was going to happen. And he was like, why? why? Why would you think that would happen? I was like, dude, you talk to the, the best of the best every week. Like you're learning so much more than me. And I think that that's what people don't really understand about that podcast is that like that guy right there is like the center of that circle. Like mm-hmm. he's hearing everything from everyone. And, um, just, just to understand that and like, you know, you have to be able to talk to people. You have to, you know, understand that we have a, a Slack group on with the Orioles and, and we, it, it's all it is, is just sharing information and we don't have like a boss mm-hmm. like we have our player development coordinator who kind of oversees all of the coaches. Um, but we don't have a hitting coordinator. And the reason we don't have a hitting coordinator is because they want to do it organically. They want us to figure it out ourselves and work together and to create something special and um they trust us enough to do that so you know every single day i mean we're there's my phone's dinging you know and it's somebody else throwing an idea out there or or sharing something that maybe i didn't understand before and now i get it um i actually i do lessons during the uh off season and i had one of my former players come in and hit with me i was stumped like i i couldn't figure it out like i couldn't figure out what, we, what this kid was doing so doing I was, right I couldn't figure out what he was doing wrong because okay. was some, he was putting up pretty good numbers. But like, again, we have this technology that we're able to see, you know, where things don't add up and yeah, he was putting up good numbers, but he was probably having some issues with off speed pitches. Um, so I sent a video and I asked the question in my group, you know, to all of our hitting coaches and, uh, right away, boom, Patrick Jones, another podcast guy mm-hmm. calls me up. Hey, did you look at this? Did you look at that? And, um, in the beginning, I'm not going to lie, I, I kind of just passed through it and I saw what he said and I was just like, eh, like not saying I'm not going to read it, but I was like in the middle of a lesson. I didn't get the full understanding of it. So I went back that night and looked at it again 
and I was like, yo, that's, that's what it is. Like, mm-hmm. thank you. So I, you know, posted in there. I think anytime you can, you can just talk to anyone about, you know, their views or, um, you know, read books. Mm-hmm. I think that's another big thing. Like I just read, uh, peak, um, peak, yeah, it's called peak. By who? Um, I don't think I've heard of that one. Fantastic book. I mean, it talks about um, deliberate practice. Mm-hmm. Um, hold on. It's Is right it here. specifically an athletic book? No, it's okay. not about athletics at all, really. Okay. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's called Peak. Uh, it's by Anders Ericsson. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and, and when I first started reading the book, uh, our player development guy asked me to read it. I read it. So that's and, not a new book then. No, it's not. Okay. Yeah. And, um, but I'd never even heard of it. No, I've heard of Erickson, first, but I haven't heard of it. First couple book, yeah. chapters of it, I was pulling my hair out like, oh my God, this is so awful. What am I reading? Oh, really? Because it was talking about like, you know, Beethoven and like things like that, remembering numbers, but it all comes back to like, you know, deliberate practice. And if, if I can train my, if I can practice the right way, there's anything's possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Beethoven wasn't born a superstar. He he learned things or Bach. Bach was Bach was the first person who was um, um, he had perfect pitch, mm. which he you hit a note on the keyboard and he could say, oh yeah, it's C flat. He could do that for every note. Wow. So it's not something that he was just born with. It was something that he learned and come to find out, his dad was a, a, a musician as well. So at a very young age, he he learned what perfect pitch was. Mm-hmm. You know, almost not not on purpose, but he just learned, and. Um, that goes with Ken Griffey Jr. or, you know, whether you're a chess player or whatever, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. wasn't born a god. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He was he was in the big league dugout with his dad all the time. He learned things, whether he knew it or not, how to be the best. And um, that's, that's what really opened my eyes. It's like, wow, we can really practice better. Mm-hmm. You know, like we can look at the goal and say, okay, we want guys to do this. How do we practice to do mm-hmm. that? Um, and it might be unconventional. And I think that's why people sometimes are afraid to do do things like that. They're like, oh, well, we always done it. we've always done it this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, just like how we hit fungos to the infielders. Um, if I have a, a right-handed fungo hitter hitting a ball to a first baseman, do you realize that 92% of the balls get hit to a first baseman from a lefty? So why is a righty hitting a fungo to mm-hmm. – it just doesn't make sense. Right. So then you start kind of critiquing how you practice. Um and I think that's what I've really gotten really good at over the past couple of years is like, I've, I've been open to listen to anybody, you know, tell me what it is. Like even the things that I don't agree with, yeah. if they're that passionate about something, I'm like, there's gotta be something to it. Right. You know, there's some hitting guys out there that do some crazy stuff. And I'm like, why does he do that? Why does he post this stuff and know that people are going to just kill him online about it? There's gotta be something there. He like, must be pretty It's something adamant on about something. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or maybe he's not. I don't know. But I want to know what what the deal is, and uh, I want to make sure that I've I've covered all resources and all all checks check boxes and everything to mm-hmm. make sure that you know I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So so I want to honor your time. I know you got a a, a conference call in about probably 20 minutes. Last question I have is uh, kind of off base, but I think it's relevant. And I'd like, to, especially based on this idea of of you're talking about deliberate practice at the highest level, um, when you look at youth sports today what is your belief about what a kid's need what a kid needs to to develop not necessarily into a mlb player someday but just in general like you well probably about six or seven years ago i i would 
I was probably going to say that, yeah, you know, guys are good in Florida because they play all the time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, I, if you could, the more you can play, the more it's better for you. Yeah. Um, but what I've started to learn is that, you know, when, when kids are just specific to baseball or, you know, badminton or whatever, whatever it is that they're playing, um, they're not training those accessory muscles or creating, you know, athleticism, um, with those other sports. And that's something I look back on. I always played multiple sports and I was always told that, that if I just focused on one sport, I'd be better. Mm-hmm. And, but I didn't want to, I wanted to play football. I want to play basketball. I want to play baseball. And in the meantime, I play indoor soccer in the off season, you know, and I, there's sometimes I'm playing three sports at one time. Yeah. And, um, I think that's why I'm the athlete that I was like, I'm able to see things and understand how my body works. Um, you know, if you, if you showed me how to, you know, I want you to be a lacrosse player, I could probably figure it out, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what I think you see a lot with baseball players that they can do multiple sports. Whereas, you know, not every football player can come in and play baseball, but baseball players can go out and be pretty good at football mm-hmm. um, because that's what they've always done. And I think that, you know, the youth sport thing, I just be, I'm just afraid of like burnout, mm-hmm. especially in baseball. It's, it's a, I see it with my daughter now where, you know, she's eight she doesn't like baseball really she doesn't like softball because it's boring and all i can do is just say okay well, what do you want what do you want to do she rides horses she plays soccer you know she does different stuff and um i think it's really important to you know not allow kids to burn out to just be one sport specified i mean i think that's i think it's insane yeah have you read um, the book range you're in this book no uh, by David Epstein, I think his first book was The Sports Gene. Uh, this is a book that's not specifically sports-related at all, but I thought about when you were talking about Peak because he uses a lot of examples of, you know, the Beethovens of the world, the the, the, the people who were masters of what they did, and mm-hmm. the iron, I don't know, I guess irony is not the right word, but the surprising part of the book is that these are not, fo- it's kind of, he's not directly contradicting the 10,000-hour rule that Malcolm Gladwell yeah, made famous. Too. Yeah, but yeah. He, he kind of is in a way making an argument to say there's another argument to be made that people that were eventually fantastic at what they did had a range of experiences doing a lot of different things and Mm -hmm. so youth sports has has clung to this book a little bit right now yeah i mean i think i think if you look at it like just myself i play basketball like i have to be super athletic to guard you know some of the best players so and then you take that athleticism and then you put it on the baseball field, and that's almost the same type of athleticism I need to field a ground ball. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I, if I'm just fielding regular ground balls hit to me by my dad in the backyard, and I think I'm getting better, I'm not getting better. Right. You know, it's not, it's not the same. So anytime you can, um, you know, recreate drills or sports, you know, whether it's soccer, football, or whatever, um, I think that's important. Yeah. So Cool. Awesome. Well, it's almost one fifteen. I want to give you time to, to know what you're doing next. Uh, I can't thank you enough for doing this. This no, is awesome to reconnect. We were going to grab coffee anyways. My, you mentioned your your buddy there who's who's connecting with all these people, and that's been my selfish just love of doing this podcast. Is yeah, uh, I mean, but I think still, it comes yeah. down to you learning more about everything. Like yeah. you probably know more about you know what I do. Now, I mean, and you were around us. You were I was. I was around yeah. you. I was watching you. I would. I talked to Ken more than I talked to you about kind of what you guys were doing right because yeah. we wanted to mirror that as best we could on the lacrosse field because you were the the especially athletically at the time that was the the crown jewel of the school yeah. and we wanted yeah, to yeah. figure out what you were doing right and uh, but to sit down and I always say this you know 
the, the intentionality we get to have with this conversation is really cool. Oh, yeah. uh, and I appreciate it. Uh, anything else you want to say before we sign off or no, I just appreciate yeah. you having me. I think that, like I said, talking things through people with people, that's, that's what I get the, the biggest kick out of now. And I, I don't think I would have said that, you know, five, six years ago. Yeah. I, I'd rather just sit down and talk to people about like what they do and what their beliefs are. I mean, it doesn't have to be about sports. It could be anything. Yeah. Just to figure things out. So yeah. Cool. Appreciate it. Well, congratulations again on what you're doing. I'm excited to, to see you guys continue to grow. I think it's a brilliant move by the Orioles. Uh, uh, so. to, I really do. I, <laughs> I think it is uh, to, to bring you on. So thanks for doing this, man. Appreciate it, man. All right. Thank you for listening to the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. This is a journey that started with a TEDx talk back in 2016, and I am very excited to share my 50 cups of coffee with you in 2020. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show wherever you are listening. We will launch a new interview every Monday. Please give us a rating and leave a review if you are so inclined. It means more to us than you know. And connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Bobby Audley. This podcast is a production of the Pinot Training Group. To learn more about the work we do with teams and organizations, please check us out at pinotraininggroup.com.